number nine this evening, Matthew chapter number nine, and we'll be looking at verses one through eight. Matthew chapter number nine, beginning there in verse one, and we'll be looking down through verse number eight. I want to draw out before we get into the text, the uh, expression and the verse, specifically verse number four, uh, where it simply says, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. This particular account of our Lord's Speaking with the scribes who we will learn were standing there with Jesus as they're witnessing a miraculous healing of a man who has been brought there who is sick of the palsy or he is paralyzed. And these scribes can only say to themselves uh, without saying it outwardly what they're thinking. And yet the Bible tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts. Uh, we need to be reminded tonight that our Lord has a perfect knowledge of everything that we think, everything that we say to ourselves, every motive, every intent. Uh, that which is most secret to us is not secret to Him. Our most hidden thought is opened to Him. And there is nothing that we can hide before Him. Uh, we learned a little bit about this on Sunday as we're looking again through Hebrews chapter number 4. But if you will recall earlier in chapter number 4 of Hebrews, we were reminded, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the divine asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So we are certainly aware that uh, the Lord himself uh, knew the thoughts of these scribes, and he could say to them, ask them the question, why or wherefore are you thinking evil in your hearts? Uh, there are a great number of thoughts that come across our minds that if we were openly and honest with ourselves are probably thoughts that we ought not have. There are probably thoughts that uh, often uh, there are things that uh, we, we should desire to mortify, we should desire to kill. Uh, we should desire to say, these are the thoughts I wish I was not dealing with. And there are many things, sadly, that because of our nature and our uh, depravity, uh, we are still prone to sometimes have very offensive thoughts. Uh, these were certainly offensive thoughts to the Lord. Uh, we, of course, know because he knows all things. All things have been planned by him. Uh, we believe in the sovereignty of God, which means we believe that uh, God is sovereign over even us. He's sovereign over every aspect of us, our thoughts, our hearts. Uh, they are his right uh, to question. Uh, he has a right to question why are we thinking evil thoughts? Why do we have evil in our heart? He has a right to uh, come upon us through the Spirit and convict us. Uh, he has a right to take notice 
of that which is offensive to him. Now, it's often very easy to get carried away in these particular passages when Jesus is dealing with a particular people group. He's dealing with the scribes. And we immediately come before the text, and when we read about the Pharisees, we read about the scribes, we read about particular people in Scripture, we come with a, a preconceived notion about what, who they were, what they were, and we're not surprised that the scribes were having evil thoughts. We're not surprised that the Pharisees were having evil thoughts. And I think that's a part of the, the reason we have to be sure we uh, don't misapply this to think uh, we could never have wicked, evil thoughts. Uh, it's not something that only the scribes and the Pharisees would have. But there is a particular emphasis that Jesus places on the thoughts that these particular individuals were having. Uh, if you'll go with me now to verse number 1 of, of chapter 9, it says, And he, this is Jesus, entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. Now, this city uh, is the uh, city of Capernaum. He has crossed over the Sea of Galilee. And remember, at the end of chapter number 8, Jesus had all been told to leave. Uh, they prayed him out of their coast. They did not want him there. Uh, he had Remember, he had taken those demons and he had sent them into the herd of swine. And the swine ran over the cliff. And the people responded by saying, we don't want you here. Uh, so Jesus has now traveled and he's coming to a place, uh, it's Capernaum. Now, it doesn't tell us in Matthew chapter 9, verse number 1, uh, that this was Capernaum, but the parallel account in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, does tell us that this is Capernaum that he has arrived at. Uh, we do know that as you study through the Bible, you'll know that this was a, a particular favored city that he had, he had come into, and, and yet we still will find a place uh, that is not going to receive him as they should. So they, he comes into the city, and it tells us, And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. So Jesus, as he's arrived in Capernaum, uh, there is a group of individuals that bring a man who is sick of the palsy and he's lying on this bed, verse 2 says. And it says that Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Our Lord here is demonstrating his perfect power over weakness. His power over disease. Uh, this man, sick of the palsy, is a man who is paralyzed, but he's also a man that is carrying on himself the burden of his own sin. He is, he is carrying upon his own conscience his sin. This is a man that is uh, more than just paralyzed. He is burdened under the weight of his sin. And so the other accounts mention uh, that there were four men who brought this man to Jesus. Matthew gets right to the point and just simply says that they brought to him a man sick of the palsy. It's where it helps us to read the other accounts to fill in some of the spaces. So there are four people that bring this man to Jesus, but the first thing that he makes mention of is that uh, he makes mention of their faith. 
He recognizes the faith of these men, these friends of this individual who had put themselves together. These four men, they carry him. The other accounts give the story that they carried him up onto a roof and they removed one of the tiles and they lowered him down into the midst where the Lord is preaching. Matthew leaves a lot of those details out where Mark and Luke do make mention of those. So there's a lot more to this narrative. But Matthew, again, it is short, it is sweet. He gets right to the point of what's happening. And while he's being lowered down into the midst, the other accounts also make mention that the men could not get into the front door because of the press. There were so many people standing on the outside of this building where Jesus was preaching that people could not get in. So they take matters into their own hands. They take the roof off. They lower him into the midst. And this is where Jesus makes that uh, very well-known declaration. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. There is something very sweet about how Jesus deals with this man. Uh, He deals and he calls this man lying on the bed. He calls him son. Uh, This is very much a a term of of, of, uh, almost of endearment, if you will, a term that uh, here's this young man who could do nothing for himself. Here's this young man who who is feeble, who is paralyzed. And here Jesus refers to him as son, thy sins be forgiven thee. This man is facing two problems in his life. He's paralyzed and he's also dealing with the distress of his own sin. Uh, This is going to lead to this conversation that the Lord is going to have with these scribes who are standing there looking. And as the scribes' ammo often was, they were trying to find something to entangle Jesus in either entangle him in his talk or entangle him in something that he was doing. And they don't say anything, but Jesus still knows their thoughts. He knows their intent. Now, there's a couple of things that are happening here that, of course, are going to set the scribes off onto this thought process. The first real acknowledgement is, is that Jesus himself declares this man's sins to be forgiven. Now, before he ever tells him to take up his bed and walk, he deals with the man's condition by telling this man, your sins are forgiven. Now, to the scribe standing there, you have to realize this is what would have led them to have these thoughts because Jesus was making a declaration. They knew that only one person, only one thing could forgive a man's sin, and that was God. And by Jesus declaring thy sins be forgiven thee, he was declaring that he had the power to absolve effectually this man's sin. That's what Jesus dealt with first. He dealt with the man's sin first. He dealt with it first because it is the thing that the man who's laying on that bed longed for and needed the most. We realize that it is sin is the very root of every other thing that happens. Uh, Death is due to sin. Disease is due to, to sin. Sin is the very root of man's problems. Not just spiritually, but even in the physical realm. We get sick. We die because of sin. That's the very reason of it. Had there never been sin, there would be no death. There would be no disease. There'd be no weakness. And yet... Jesus deals with this man's greatest need first. 
Uh, I also think it's notable that Jesus unveils his majesty, his glory in this most profound way by dealing with the very thing that would lead the scribes to think these evil thoughts. Uh, I'm going to absolve this man or remove or forgive his sins. Now realize that at this point, this man still cannot walk. He is still on this bed. He is still in this condition. He has not yet had his physical condition dealt with, but he's dealt with his sin condition. Which leads to verse number three, which says, And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. He blasphemes, they said. Now, this is, uh, this is uh, a couple characteristics of the scribes. Uh, first of all, these scribes, I believe, were certainly afraid to speak out publicly. I believe they were afraid to say it out loud, or they would have. And the Bible's very specific that it says they said within themselves. Uh, I think this even goes so far as to say they said it within themselves. It may not have even outwardly appeared that they were speaking. It wasn't speaking quietly or softly. They said it within themselves. There was no indication that they spoke anything. It, there was no indication that said that they're, they're saying anything, but yet Jesus knows their thoughts. Now remember, Jesus had already began to be being dealt with people were, were beginning to resent him. The scribes and the Pharisees, even within a very short time of his ministry, earthly ministry beginning, they were already, they were already embittered by him. Uh, remember, they were the ones that, that felt like uh, that, that, that we're, the, we're the law keepers. We are the ones who, who wrote the law. And there was already this feeling of ill towards him. And they were already beginning to conspire. How do we get this man? How do we trap him? Now, it's interesting that, in, in, again, I don't know what, which translation you have. I'm assuming that most of them do this. But in my translation, you'll notice uh, that the word man is in italics. And so anytime we see that, that's, that's where the translators have tried to insert a word that gives us or helps us understand. So that's... <laughs> That's not necessarily how they phrased it in their mind. In other words, if, if, we can, if we can say it this way, the scribes did not say within themselves, this man. What they actually just said is this. This, uh, this, uh, uh, they didn't really even know what to call it. But man is, 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 was added there. And so this, this man to them uh, was a nobody. Uh, th there was nothing special about him, um, but yet there was still a fear of him. Uh, really, it's the idea of not really knowing how to classify him. I don't know what to call him. Uh, this was not a respectful thing that's happening here. Remember, they're trying to find a way to get him. They're trying to find a way to entangle him. It's, it's almost like, it's almost a, a, a despising this, this blasphemer who's just now claimed to forgive this man's sin. Only God can do that. 
They didn't even know what to call him. Their hearts, even under their breath, they didn't know what to call him. They were blaspheming against him, and they were charging him with blasphemy. Notice the irony there. They're accusing him of blasphemy at the same time they're committing blasphemy against him by denying that he's God. There is this principle here that if they supposed anything, they certainly didn't suppose he was God. So if they were going to err on one side, they were going to say, this is just any other man. And in our understanding, no other man has the ability to forgive sin. So it's very important how this is viewed. Because let's just say they suppose that the Lord was just a man. If they suppose he was just a man, then their prerogative of this man cannot forgive sins would have been right. Because even they would have believed and said that the pardon or forgiveness of sin is the sole prerogative of God. Only God can determine whether a man or a woman is forgiven of their sin. So in their mind's eye, if they were going to call him a man, then they knew that he was also in their eyes a blasphemer because he was taking something that is only the prerogative of God. This man could not just simply, at his word, forgive sin. But yet there must be something about what's happening here because they don't say this out loud. They don't speak blasphemer to Jesus out loud. They said it within themselves. I think there's even a level here if they didn't dare even to attempt to overthrow him here or to usurp his authority. But notice Jesus' response there in verse 4. Jesus knowing their thoughts. Uh, there's a big difference in the word know and to predict. Uh, this is not he thought or predicted what they were thinking based on the circumstances. He knows their thoughts. He knows their thoughts so clearly that he says, wherefore or why do you think evil in your hearts? He is sovereign after all. But we're met with that same expression that seeing the faith of the four that bore this man, and now we read that Jesus knows the thoughts of these other individuals. The people who are questioning him and his right or authority to forgive sin, now he's putting the question on them. It could be simply said, the questioner is now asking, or the questioners are now asking the question. He's asking those who are questioning, does he have the right to do this? The wise and the wherefores that Jesus is mentioning here are going to the very root of the matter seeking what's really at the heart of what they're accusing him of. We are, we are accountable. We are just as accountable for what we think as what we say. Let me say that again. We are just as accountable for what we think as what we say. A person can outwardly never seem to say the wrong thing. They can seem to never say the wrong thing. But Christ is the knower of our hearts and he knows and we will give an account for even the words in which we thought. We will be called into question about those. 
But remember, every accusation against Jesus is an unreasonable accusation. Everything that they accused him of was always unreasonable, and it never had any grounds. It never had any merit. But what a question. Why do you think or wherefore think evil in your hearts? Now, the question, of course, is dealing, why do you think evil towards me? Jesus is asking, why do you have evil in your hearts against me? What is the cause of this evil? He is drawing these scribes to examine their own hearts and to look at their hearts and say, what's the cause of this evil? What good comes from evil thoughts? Nothing. Now, the question that Jesus poses back to them is again trying to put them into a place where they really don't have an answer. Because notice what he says. He says, for which is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk? Now, really what's happening here is he's answering their evil thoughts by a question that is truly unanswerable. It's unanswerable because depending on what they answer, it's going to demonstrate something. And the the main thing it's going to demonstrate is both of these things are beyond human power. The human in himself does not have the power to forgive sin. A mere man doesn't have the power to forgive sin, nor does he have the power to command a paralytic to get up from his bed and walk. That's what leads Jesus to ask the question, which one of these is easier? Because both of them would lead to the same conclusion. If they answered one of the other, then they would be declaring something that man could not do. The reality is, is their speech is being tested, what they say. For what is easier? Arise and walk. If we compare these two miracles, if we were to look at these both as on the surface of what they are, because he's going to tell this man in just a moment, after he asked a question, he says, uh, he says uh, or to say, arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then says he to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. So Jesus asked a question, then he does the second half of the miracle. The sins he just forgiven of the man, now he tells the man to get up and walk. They have both miracles in front of them. And he's asked the question, which is easier? But he's just done both of them right in, their, right in front of them. He's put them in a place where it is impossible for them to answer this question. Both of these things are impossible with men. Now, in some respects... Theologically, of course, the pardon of the sin is the greater work of the two. If we were to make a comparison and say, okay, which is the greater work? The forgiveness of sins or to tell a paralyzed man to get up and take his bed and walk? Of course, the greater work is the forgiveness of sin. Why? Because the accomplishment of the forgiveness of sin actually required the entirety of what Jesus Christ has done in the incarnation and what was going to be done in the atonement. It would have required both of those things. To forgive sin requires the atonement, the incarnation, both of those happen. But Jesus, he does both of these miracles 
And he confirms his claim of being God by visible signs which nobody could question. So in other words, there was no real way to actually see that the man's sins were forgiven, but there was certainly a way for the people to see this paralyzed man can now walk. Does everybody kind of see what's happening here? He He could say, I forgive this man's sin, but we're not going to see anything take place right there. But when he tells the man, arise and walk, now nobody can question. Because if this man, this man has the ability to tell a person to get up and walk, he's got some sort of authority. Because human, humans can't do that. So we do see that the Lord bring, he performs both of these miracles and he confirms his claim of power by the visible sign with no, which nobody could question. Now, he can pardon my sin. He can, he can convert my soul. He can, he can heal my body. I can bring both forms to a person who comes and needs to be forgiven of their sins. They come to Jesus. A person that needs to be healed of their physical maladies, they come to Jesus. He can do both of those works equally. When Jesus is answering, asking the question about which is easier, this is really not a question of which one is easier for him. He's putting it to them to make them answer the question. So this is not an either or where Jesus is going to answer and say, well, comparatively speaking, it's easier to tell the person to arise and walk than it is to actually atone for their sin and forgive it. That's not what his purpose was. His purpose was what he says in verse number seven or verse number six, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He's saying that the very reason why he heals the paralytic primarily is to show that he has the power to forgive sins, not that he has the power, most importantly, to raise the paralyzed man. That's an important distinction. It's an important distinction because the second part of the miracle was primarily used to silence the question of the scribes. Now remember, they haven't said anything. This has all been in their thoughts. But Jesus says this is for the purpose that ye may know, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thy house. Now the question we might ask ourselves tonight is, did these scribes ever come to the knowledge that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, had the power to forgive sin. We don't know. We don't know what necessarily happened to these scribes after they left this conversation. We're not told a lot about what their reaction was here in Matthew, but we're just simply told that the man that's healed of the palsy is told to go back to his house. The case before the scribes is made very, very clear. Jesus, the Son of Man, Yet, while he was on earth, in his humble, lowly, poor condition, had the authority and the power to forgive sins that were committed against God. That was the entire purpose of this miracle. He bids the man, tells the man, commands the man to arise. Other accounts say, take up thy bed as well. And he's instructed to go to his house. 
He's proving that he has power on the earth by healing the paralyzed man. By exerting what they thought was the greater power. They would prove, he was proving to them that he had power over both. He further says, take up your bed. Or in this case, he would have rolled up a mat-like bed. He would have lifted it up on his shoulders. And he would have done something that he probably had not done in a long time. He walked. He is walking under the commandment of Jesus Christ Himself. This is not a, I'm asking you to go home to this man, but telling him to go to your house. He responds, and that's exactly where he goes. And he arose and departed to his house. He speaks a word. He'd already received a pardon for his sins, and now he doesn't question whether his sins are forgiven. He doesn't question whether or not he's actually been healed of this palsy. He gets up and he goes. Realizing this, that if our sins be forgiven, then truly there is nothing that's impossible with God. If Christ can forgive our sins, there's nothing impossible with God. We see passages like all things are possible with God. You, without me, you can do nothing. Now, this is not primarily focused on what we accomplish in this world. It's, it's the reality that Jesus Christ has the authority and the power to forgive sins. With Him, all things are possible. Why? Because He accomplishes that which is most needful, the forgiveness of sins. A paralyzed person needs their sins forgiven more than they need their walking restored. Yet Jesus does both of these things in order to show that He had authority over both not only the physical, but also the spiritual. As soon as this young man's legs and arms received strength, he did immediately what Jesus told him to do. You realize that this young man is exercising the faith that he had because he arises and goes immediately. He's exercising that faith. He obeys the Lord's command. There was no delay. There was no failure to perform that which Jesus Christ commanded. It would have to be curious to think a person who had just been healed from such an awful condition would want to stay back and would want to thank the person that healed them. But Jesus commands him to go, and he goes. He didn't go to the temple. He didn't go to the countryside. He didn't go to the fields. It says he departed to his house. Imagine what his family, we're not told anything about them, but imagine what his family must have thought when the man who was paralyzed that day earlier walked in the door under his own power and under his own strength. Where is a man's healing best witnessed? Amongst his own family and his own house. You know, the greatest place where God's grace is demonstrated in a person's life is demonstrated within the families that God places us in. It's within our own homes. 
The greatest place to see God's mighty work in someone's life of bringing them unto himself and saving them from their sins and forgiving them of their sins is seen in that person's own house. I think that's the big re- one of the big reasons why Jesus says, go to your house. He wanted his family to see what had happened to him. But notice, as was often the case in verse 8, but when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Now we do see that this was openly witnessed by the multitudes. No doubt crowds heard of this miracle. The town probably began to speak a lot about it. They began to talk about it, saying, hey, did you hear what happened to the person? How he got there? He was lowered through the roof. Four of his friends brought him. They tore the roof off the house. They dropped him in the midst of Jesus. And Jesus looked at this young man, and the first thing he said is, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And before you know it, the next thing, this man gets up off his bed, and he walks out of there. You've got to believe people all over are talking about this. And it does say that they marveled and they glorified God. Not everybody necessarily believed that Christ, of course, was the Savior. But it did lead them to a certain level of glorifying God or adoring what God had done. Sadly, for probably many of these townspeople, they marveled just for a few moments and then they went back to their normal everyday lives. And it never changed anything about them. You know, we can marvel at what God has done. We can marvel at God's working in this world and God's working even in our family's life. And you know, you could still be left outside the body of Christ. Never repenting of your sins, never believing in Christ, never having your soul converted. Many people adore God in some sense, but they never go far enough to actually acknowledge Him that He has the power to forgive sins. There's a big difference in adoring God and glorifying God for the works that He does. It's another thing to glorify God for the ability and the power to forgive sins. Folks, you realize that's our greatest need. If your sins have been forgiven, you have received the greatest power and authoritative work that Jesus Christ could ever do. Your sins have been forgiven. Now, nobody could argue with what Jesus had done to the man who was paralyzed because when he said, arise, the man arose. Nobody could dispute this guy got up when Jesus said to get up. But again, it's interesting that it uses the word and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. There's a sense in which this particular account of Matthew, and that kind of struck me, they were surprised that he should, they, God should give such power unto men. I think there's something to be said here that these most of the people who still glorified God and were marveled by the, the multitudes that were marveled still just simply thought Jesus Christ was nothing but a man. Now we know he was fully God and fully man. That's an important doctrinal distinction that we always have to be secure in. Fully God, fully man. But evidently they simply viewed Jesus as a man on whom God had given special gifts to. I believe these individuals, these multitudes, were just simply saying, 
This is just a prophet that God has given miraculous power to. That statement often that we see, but when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. A lot of people run right to the finish line and say, see, a multitude of people got saved by what they saw. That's not what the Scripture says. It doesn't say many were converted. He doesn't say that many received faith. He simp- it simply says they glorified and marveled that God had given power to a man. They went only as far as what they could recognize. They only went as far as they could understand. You know, there are some today who won't give God glory for anything. There are some that won't give God glory for the good things in their life. They won't give glory for God for the good things that happen. They don't even marvel at His reality. But just giving God glory for a miracle doesn't equal repentance, and it doesn't equal conversion, and it does not equal justification. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, it was not by accident. Think about this. If the Son of Man had this power to forgive sin and had the power to tell a paralytic to take up his bed and walk, is God through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ as God, are there really any limits to him? Really, we as believers... We glorify God every single day. We glorify God because of the many ways in which He has given us strength. He's given us power. He's given us the ability. He's provided for us. And if this Jesus, who did such a wonderful, great miracle with this man, how often have we found ourselves questioning whether or not God has the power in our life? How many times do we find ourselves questioning, maybe we don't say it out loud, maybe we just simply say it within ourselves is God really that good you know there are circumstances that arise in our lives and it happens to all of us at some point that might bring us to the place where we actually begin to maybe not have wicked thoughts towards Jesus's ability to forgive sins but maybe we start having thoughts of maybe this just isn't fair Maybe this just isn't right. And yet, when we think about what Jesus Christ has done, He's dealt with our greatest need, and by His glorious gift, He's atoned and He's forgiven our sins. That promises us a glorious, a glorious eternity. Where one day, when we stand before Jesus, and we will be like Him, and we will see Him as He is, we will find out every earthly ailment, every earthly struggle will, will fade away realizing that the greatest need we had was the forgiveness of our sins and Jesus Christ forgave them. Even though I sin every single day, even though I have thoughts I shouldn't have, the forgiveness of my sins is still there. He doesn't take it away every time I sin again and aren't you glad for that imagine if we had to have our sins forgiven and eternally and converted again every time we sinned we lost it we'd be losing our salvation tens of times a day but yet jesus christ when he declared to that man your sins are forgiven thee take up your bed and walk he did exactly that 
he obeyed the Lord. Next week, we'll look at the call of a man by the name of Matthew, who the Lord is going to simply come to where he is, seated at a table, and he's going to command this gentleman to follow him, and he's going to do just that. And we'll look at that text next week. Let's go ahead and pray together, and then we'll close our time tonight with a hymn. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege it's been to be able to look to your holy scriptures tonight together. And Father, I pray that as we think on these truths, and when we leave this place in just a few moments, that we'll meditate on these truths. And those of us tonight that know Christ as our Savior, we know that we have been forgiven. We know that we've been converted, that we stand justified. Lord, I pray that we would return thanks for what has been done for us. And Lord, I do pray for those at this moment that might still be unconverted, those that have yet to repent of their sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we plead with you that according to your perfect will, uh, that you would save those loved ones that we may know, those uh, co-workers, those friends, those that we go to school with, whatever the case may be. But Lord, we trust you because we know that salvation is all of the Lord and we are most grateful for that. Father, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.